Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, a controversial water bottling plant planned for Bloomfield has residents asking whose water it is. But first, despite the fact that Fox News and the candidates on stage this weekend all but avoided the issue, the Flint, Michigan water crisis has made its way into the presidential campaign. Hillary Clinton talked about it during the Democratic debate held in South Carolina last month, and Bernie Sanders called for Michigan's governor to step down. Here he is on MSNBC. This is one of the worst public health crises in modern American history. We don't know the full extent of the crisis. We know that thousands of children and others have been poisoned. We don't know how many will end up with brain damage. But clearly, this is a horrific, horrific public health crisis. And I think that in terms of the governor's office, there has been a real dereliction of duty. And I think it's not good enough to be talking about prayers. It's important to say, listen, we certainly didn't mean to do that, but we screwed up terribly, and people will be paying the price for this for their entire lives, how many we don't know, and the right thing, in my view, to do is to resign. Now, the Michigan Civil Rights Commission has announced it will hold hearings to see whether discrimination played a role in the handling of Flint's water crisis. Today, where we live from Flint, Michigan to New Haven, Connecticut, we'll learn more about the environmental justice issues facing America's low income and minority communities. You can join the conversation as always. Call us at 860-275-7266. Again, our phone number is 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me in studio today is Dr. Katie Martin, assistant professor and director of the public health program at the University of St. Joseph. Dr. Martin, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Also joining us by phone is Aaron Morrison, a civil rights and diversity reporter for the International Business Times, who's been writing about these issues and and tying together the stories of Flint, Michigan and New Haven, Connecticut. And Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you heard Bernie Sanders there and Hillary Clinton earlier at the top of our program talking about whether or not Michigan's governor should resign, talking about where some of the blame lies. That's, I'm sure, a bit of the conversation that that you're thinking about right now. But what we want to talk about today is this notion of environmental injustice. How much of what happened in Flint and what is happening in places around America right now has to do with who is living in these places? Aaron, maybe you can start us off and and talk about that. Is Flint a victim of environmental injustice here? It certainly is uh, in in every every measure uh, where you're looking at demographics or or um, just just socioeconomics, it's it's definitely uh, at play here. I, I should point out though that Flint's uh, water problems are a little bit more complex because it has to deal uh, with with the the politics of it. But uh, but really, what we're looking at um, when we look at these issues uh, broadly across the country uh, is the fact that poor people and people of color are more likely to live near environmental hazards and industrial uh, facilities that pose a threat to you know, their, the, the environment uh, locally and, and, uh, and the residential areas um, where, where they're adjacent to. 
So let's just ask the sort of big, dumb question right now. Why is that? Why does that happen over and over again across America? Well, I think part of it, and, and this is what advocates have told me, that part of it is, is that uh, these communities don't often have a voice uh, when it comes to uh, the decisions that are made to either place these facilities near them or to allow these facilities to degrade uh, near them or, uh, or to expand. So uh, it's, it's really about political power. Uh, and so some of these communities uh, lacking that don't uh, really have uh, the voice that, say, uh, a suburban um, middle class or upper middle class uh, community might have. Dr. Martin, this is in many ways, uh, it's a health problem. This is what you study. But the way Aaron lays it out and the way we've heard it from uh, environmental activists for years, it's a political problem. I mean, from your standpoint, how do you break this down? Well, in public health, we talk about how your zip code is more important than your genetic code. And just like the name of your show states, where we live matters. And the zip code in which you live, and just as Aaron described, based on race, ethnicity, economic status is directly linked to your health outcomes. And particularly in public health, we talk about health disparities. And these are differences in health that are not only unnecessary and avoidable, but in addition are considered unfair and unjust. They're based on political decisions and priorities of where poor people can afford to live and the conditions in which those neighborhoods exist. And also how people in more affluent communities are able to control their environments in a slightly different way. Later on in our program, we're going to be talking, for instance, about where a water bottling facility might might end up uh, here in Connecticut. But these are issues that play out in town governments, and you're able to see over and over again where more affluent, sometimes suburban communities are able to negotiate better environmental terms than lower-income communities. Is that just something that we kind of feel and something that rises to the the top when we see something like Flint, Doctor? Or is this really what happens all the world around, and especially in in low-income communities here in in America? Yeah, there's a lot of data uh, showing those disparities based on where we live, based on um, the neighborhoods that people can afford to live in. And an important thing to consider, particularly for the Flint, Michigan situation, is the lack of affordable, safe, quality housing in our country. It's particularly true here in Hartford, Connecticut. Many low-income people have few choices of where they can afford to live, and that substandard housing often has lead pipes, lead paint, other unhealthy exposures that put them directly at risk for higher um, disease outcomes. So, Aaron, given all of this, and we know that your zip code often determines your quality of life, doesn't the federal government, specifically the Environmental Protection Agency, have a big role in all this? If indeed local governments and local politics are sometimes going to play a role in where things are cited and where people are allowed to live, doesn't the EPA have an overarching mandate to try to correct some of these things? And, and, And given that, Aaron, how do you think the EPA is doing? Well, the, the EPA requires the, uh, any industrial facility, uh, a power plant, uh, what have you, to uh, come up with what we call a risk management program. Uh, and that uh, essentially spells out what happens if there is a breach, a catastrophe, something that poses a, a, an immediate threat uh, to the, the well-being, the, the health of the folks that live closest to the facility. So the EPA 
uh, I guess almost by accident, or uh, are uh, in charge of making sure that the people who live closest to uh, these facilities, which we know are, are, are poor people and people of color, are um, at least protected in, in, by some measure. Um, so that when there is a, an immediate threat, they can get out of the way. But uh, but, but really, the EPA isn't involved in the, the local decisions that, that go on with, with how where these facilities are placed. And I'm wondering, Doctor, if you can talk about that, because I've always found it fascinating, both at the state level, often at the local level, and certainly the federal level. The um, agencies that police the environment are distinct from those that police public health. And they have sometimes very, very different mandates about what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, you see here in Connecticut, you know, our Department of Environmental uh, Protection was expanded to the Department of Environment and Energy. Um, often EPAs or local DEPs are told that they need to be more business friendly. They need to make sure that uh, their policies reflect a business friendly environment. Um, that's sometimes at odds with what happens on public health. Is there an argument to be made here that environmental protection and public health protection need to be, I don't know, sitting a little bit more closely together? Right. There is often a disconnect between our federal agencies, and that is translated down to the local level as well. Uh, we need more coordination between our agencies and systems so we don't have different recommendations from different levels of our government telling us what is safe for our water, our air, our food. Um, we heard a story on NPR that was actually shocking. I mean, we, we've been hearing about the story out of Flint for the last several months. My colleagues at Michigan Radio have been covering this for many, many months before that. But what we heard was a lot of Flint residents are literally just finding out that there's a problem with their water very, very recently. How surprised were you, Doctor, to hear that? Well, there was a great story on NPR last week that discussed how even when this crisis was becoming known and messages were being related into local communities. They had not been translated into Spanish or other languages. So there's a predominant Hispanic population in different segments, often very disadvantaged segments of Flint, and they hadn't been hearing these messages to not drink the water, that it wasn't safe. And it was just recently that those messages were translated saying, el agua no es potable, don't drink the water, it's not safe. I mean, that is where we talk about environmental racism or discrimination in terms of not paying attention to the people who are most at risk. And Aaron, it's, it also gets to this point where sometimes we're not translating. We're actually not literally giving people the message that they need to hear in the language that they speak. But we also make, I think, an awful lot of assumptions about how people are getting information in the first place. I mean, yeah, sure, we can be having as many stories about it on, on NPR as we want, but getting the word out to low-income communities, whether it's in Flint, Michigan, or someplace else, is something that's really, really important and something that's not really done well enough, is it? Not, not uh, if, you, if you listen to a lot of community activists, they say that, that uh, well, one, we've seen over the last year with, with the Black Lives Matter movement that uh, issues of law enforcement, uh, uh, you know, violence and uh, police brutality and, and other issues, criminal justice reform, have been in the news uh, and, and really championed uh, and, and the, the, the protests that have spread across the country have really been focused on on, on these law enforcement issues, but um, you know, some activists say that, that you know they struggle really when it comes to environmental racism and environmental justice because the diversity of the coalition behind law enforcement sort of falls away when you start talking about environmental issues, and that, that kind of is uh, reflected in the fact that a lot of 
uh, these communities, the poor and, and minority communities, don't have really uh, effective uh, voices when it comes to these issues. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so if you if you if we're seeing that these messages aren't being translated in Spanish, I think that is a reflection of, of the struggle that some uh, activist movements are having when it comes to uh, you know really informing communities about the environment. We're talking with Aaron Morrison, who's a civil rights and diversity reporter for the International Business Times, who's been making some connections between the environmental catastrophe in Flint, Michigan, and what happens in cities just like New Haven, Connecticut. We'll be talking about that in a moment. Also joining us is Dr. Katie Martin, assistant professor and director of the public health program at the University of St. Joseph. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. Mark is calling from Glastonbury. Hi there, Mark. Go ahead. Hi, John. Thank you for having me on. Listen, I... uh I'm not a lawyer. I'm a 68-year-old retired nurse. Uh, but, you know, I, I'd be interested in hearing the opinion of some lawyers. You know, I think that the first job of government is, is public safety. And I, I, my understanding is there's a concept within the law that's called deprived indifference. And I think that the people, you know, the state-appointed uh, overseer of Flint made the, this decision to change the water. Uh, and his only consideration was uh, was financial, economic. He wanted to save money. And he's done irreparable harm. Like I said, I, I've been a nurse. Uh, a lot of that time was at a children's hospital. So, you know, I, I understand what lead does. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I just, I wouldn't, like I said, I'd, I'd be really interested in hearing what uh, some lawyers and hope some mm. will call in. And I think that this is a case where it was just deprived indifference. They didn't care what they were doing as long as they were saving money. Well, and Mark, thank you very much for that. And, and Doctor, I think he, he raises something that gets me back to an earlier question that I asked you, and it, it really... It comes to what the function of government is in the first place. If it's about keeping people safe, in part, then all of these things are really tied together, whether it's public safety on the streets, making sure that you have a crime-free neighborhood, but then also making sure that your, your drinking water is safe. I, I think what he's calling for, and a lot of other people are calling for, is someone to be held accountable for that mm-hmm. in hopes that it will change something down the road. Where, where do you see it? Yeah, I think it's true that the role of government should be the self safety, well-being of residents, and we, that's been totally mismanaged in Michigan. And the irony, as Mark pointed out, is that this was a financial decision, and yet now they're going to be spending so much more money to remediate the problem. And many of these, the long-term implications, as he mentioned, we won't know for a long time. These are kids who will just be at a disadvantage in terms of their learning ability, their capacity to learn in school. And when we see this over and over again, it's not just in urban areas. I mean, in, in Charleston, West Virginia, not too many years ago, um, a, a very badly sighted uh, uh, plant spilled enormous uh, amounts of toxic waste into a river there, polluting the river for quite some time. Um, it seems as though, Doctor, there's not a mechanism to change anything until or unless something bad happens. Some of what Aaron's reporting is is talking about is trying to highlight these stories before they become front page news. We don't want to see Charleston, West Virginia. We don't want to see Flint, Michigan. 
and see people poisoned before we actually make some change. But I guess I'm just wondering from your standpoint as a public health official and somebody who, who works on this every day, what we need to do to get to that point of some change. Right. So it's true. Often it takes a crisis for us to see these things happening. There was always poverty in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. It took Hurricane Katrina for us to see it on our television sets of the you know the severity of that poverty. There is an expression that I like of never let a good crisis go to waste. So unfortunately, we have this tragedy happening in Flint. But as public health advocates and as media, we can take this tragedy to shed light on enduring environmental racism, social injustice, and health disparities. And while people are outraged about seeing fellow Americans drinking crappy brown water and kids being poisoned by lead, we can take this as an opportunity to advocate for health equity throughout our country. Aaron, in your story that, that we were reading, as you're making these connections between Flint and a place that is right here at home in New Haven, I guess I'm wondering why you chose New Haven to, to highlight some of these stories of environmental injustice. Well, uh, there was recently a, a report put out uh, by an environmental uh, justice organization out of uh, Washington, D.C., uh, which uh, ranked states by the um, percentage of people uh, from different races living um, in within uh, what they call the fence line zone or the, the zone within a mile of these facilities. So we just looked at this report and we saw that Connecticut was one of uh, was on the higher end. Eight um, percent of blacks live with, within the the, the uh, fence line in Connecticut. Eight point eight percent of Latinos, uh, but just three point eight percent of whites. So. Uh, we saw that sort of a disparity on the higher end, and so that's that's why we we uh, decided that uh, Connecticut was a place that we would go. And you know, uh, doing a little bit of research, thought that uh, New Haven would be a good place to to find out, uh, you know, what's going on. Well, I think an important part of your reporting too is is talking about how people uh, fish in the river near a hazardous waste site, and they don't do it for weekend sport. They don't put on their hip waders and go out like where I live up in the northwest corner so they can do some fly fishing catch and release. They're actually trying to feed their family with the fish. And these are exactly the sort of fish, frankly, Aaron, that people shouldn't be eating. And this is happening in, in New Haven. It's happening in a lot of other communities in which people are trying to do sustenance uh, fishing and they're uh, eating contaminated fish. Certainly. And that's that's one uh, the the. Uh neighborhood that you're you're referring to is a fair haven in in uh, New Haven Connecticut there is a uh, what the the English station it's a, a coal power plant that's been shut down since 1992 uh, but it's just sitting there uh, sort of waiting to be uh, either dismantled or repurposed uh, and the community that's adjacent yeah it's a, a prim- primarily uh, immigrant Latino uh, people of color um, working poor uh, in that neighborhood, and they are fishing in, in the water there. And, and uh, some of the fish uh, are contaminated with PCBs. And uh, but there is a sort of a notice out. The state and, and uh, the city put out a notice that said, you know, these are the type of fish you should not eat. Uh, but but yeah, it, it, there's a concern that there's something. What have, what do we uh, not know about uh, this site? Because the site is. Uh, also contaminated with PCBs, so uh, it, it's it it sort of highlights this overall uh, this overarching theme that that people uh, people of color, immigrants and poor are are most impacted by, by I, I, these sorts of 
issues. I, I will also say that there there is a notice in the western part of the state out where I live where the fly fishermen do fish. The Housatonic River, you're not supposed to eat fish from there either, in part because that river was contaminated by PCBs from General Electric, the company that we're very concerned is leaving Connecticut now. But that's, that's a total aside on my part. Uh, Dr. Martin, uh, before we finish this segment, I'm just wondering if you can you can pick up on that. Aaron comes to Connecticut to tell the story that, you know, is told in many different uh, communities around the country. But there is something specific about Connecticut, about the income inequality and the difference between uh, the Fairhaven neighborhood and the people who are living there and maybe people who live in a town next door or the town ne- next to that who live in very different conditions. Is Connecticut a, a special sort of situation when it comes to the type of environmental justice issues that we're talking about today? I don't know that it's special. I think we certainly um, have the extremes. Connecticut is really considered one with the highest level of income inequality. But nationally, people are raising attention to this, the 1%, and the notion that there are many, many people who um, don't have equal access to all kinds of things, whether it's clean water, health insurance, healthy food, et cetera. I think Connecticut is is an example of, of the extremes, but we see this throughout the country and, quite honestly, around the world, too. Uh, I want to thank Aaron uh, Morrison, civil rights and diversity reporter for the International Business Times. So we're going to link to uh, his story at wnpr.org slash where we live. Aaron, thank you so much for your time and your great reporting. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. Uh, well, Dr. Katie Martin is here in just the last couple minutes that we have. Something else that NPR has been reporting an awful lot about in the last week or so is the Zika virus, this very scary virus that's being uh, seen in Latin American countries here. First of all, what do we know about it right now? I mean, from your standpoint as a public health uh, uh, person watching this very closely. There's a, there's a lot we don't know. Uh, what we do know, it's a mosquito-transmitted uh, virus, and for most people, uh, it's symptomless. You won't have many symptoms, or they'll be quite mild, a rash, a fever, and it goes away. The people who are most at risk are pregnant women and, and their children. And globally, we see this. The burden of disease is carried disproportionately by women, kids, and people of color, whether it's Flint or in Latin America. Um The concern with the Zika virus is that uh, there's growing evidence that it is linked to microcephaly, where kids have um, severe brain damage, and it can be irreversible. There's still a lot we don't know. The most important thing is there is no cure. There is no vaccine for this. And so we've seen thousands of cases in particularly Brazil, but throughout Latin America, of uh, microcephaly-linked most likely to the Zika virus. We shouldn't have big concerns at this moment about it being something that is is part of our life here in Connecticut? No, the the cases that we've seen in Connecticut have been people who have traveled internationally and been exposed to the virus, caught the virus internationally, and then come back to the United States. And particularly in Connecticut, we don't have the type of mosquitoes that typically carry this virus. But but as you said before, connecting to our earlier conversation, this is really issue, an issue, once again, of environmental justice. The people who are being hit the hardest by this problem really are the people who are the most disadvantaged in, in countries much poorer than the U.S. Right. So, for example, some of the um, messages to prevent the Zika virus that I've been hearing on the news are to stay within air conditioning during the day when the mosquitoes are biting, to avoid mosquito bites and avoid becoming pregnant. And if we think about health disparities and who's most at risk, the most vulnerable will not have access to air conditioning or very likely bug repellent or prenatal care 
or contraceptives. So these messages may sound fairly simple and logical, are going to be harder for the people most vulnerable to impact in their lives. Yeah, very very simple and logical for many of the people listening to our program, but not, not so for, for many of the people who might be worst affected. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Katie Martin, Assistant Professor and Director of the Public Health Program at the University of St. Joseph. Thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. When we come back, we're going to turn to uh, another controversy, and this has to do with a water bottling plant planned for Bloomfield, Connecticut. You can join us coming up with your calls, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. We're going to turn now to another story that uh, we haven't been talking about yet on the program, although we've been doing a number of shows recently about water as a resource, about the impact of drought or mild drought conditions here in Connecticut. We're going to turn to a controversial plan to put a water bottling plant in Bloomfield. It's something that has a lot of residents concerned. We're going to talk it through with Senator Beth By, who represents Connecticut's 5th Senate District, which includes the uh, town of Bloomfield. Senator By, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, John. Happy you, to be here. And in just a moment, we're going to turn some concerned citizens and some other folks who want to call us at 860-275-7266. The company involved is Niagara, which is a uh, a water company that has facilities all around America. We've reached out to Niagara, Niagara and also Bloomfield Mayor uh, Joan Gamble for comment today, and uh, we did not uh, return or get any uh, return requests for comment. So uh, hopefully we'll have somebody call in. We may hear from somebody from the MDC, the Metropolitan District Commission, which oversees the water resource there. So Beth, by first of all, why don't you just talk us through this a little bit? What exactly is proposed in the town of Bloomfield? Uh, well, Bloomfield has proposed a, a Niagara water bottling plant that would produce about 1.8 million uh, put out 1.8 million gallons of water a day um, in plastic water bottles to be shipped in Connecticut and certainly all over the country. And, and this water would be coming directly from the water resource that we use all across the MDC uh, area, right? Yes, absolutely. And and when I talked to the mayor, you know, she said, well, there are no state regulations, no state laws that, that govern this. And that's how I got involved, because I was hearing from very concerned constituents about this precious resource. Um, do we have other bottling plants like this in the state that you know of? I'm not sure. I've just been paying attention to, to Niagara right now and that it would be a huge operation. Billions of gallons a year would head out of state. Uh, one of those concerned residents is Val Rossetti, uh, who is uh, calling us up. And, and Val, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, John. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that Niagara has not responded to, to uh, being on the program. One of the problems we've had in our community is uh, we haven't we haven't been able to meet them. Uh, they uh, their name never appeared on any of the zoning or inland wetlands permits that went through the town. Um, the first time we heard about it was at a town council meeting, which was the same time that uh, a 4.1 million dollar tax abatement and a water discount from the MDC was approved. And then uh, they failed to show up to an invitation by our mayor to come uh, talk to the citizens of Bloomfield last week. So uh, what is your biggest concern about this project? I, I think uh, our big concern is that citizens of Bloomfield did not want this as an economic development project in their town for multiple environmental reasons. One is a concern over local control of water, which is a public resource that we don't want um, made into a public commodity to sell, especially to a California for-profit company. Another is the environmental consequences of churning out 
literally could be close to 10 million plastic water bottles a day in Bloomfield. We've worked very hard to be an environmentally conscious community. And then the process that this went through, citizens really didn't have an opportunity to voice their concerns until it was presented as, quote, unquote, a done deal, which which it really isn't still yet. They have not yet finalized purchase of land in our town. Well, why did your town officials approve this deal? Uh, obviously, if, if they're representing you, why did they approve the deal and you and many other residents feel like it's it's not a good deal? I mean, what what's the disconnect between their, uh, you and the town officials? Well, I think this is a scenario that plays out across the country. This corporation has 19 other um, uh, bottling plants. They spread from California through the south, and now they want a northeastern hub to export water, and it's really an extraction business. I think uh, what happens is they they make a pitch to economic development officials, to towns that want to increase their tax base and get some jobs and water utilities that want to sell water for profit. And then these kind of subcommittee deals, boardroom deals are made. Uh, there's often, uh, you know, we're aware that in the past there have been non-disclosure agreements signed by economic development officials or verbal, you know, let's let's keep this on the sly until it's done. And we don't know if that happened in Bloomfield, but uh, I hope it didn't. <laughs> well, well, let me ask uh, Senator Beth Bayh about the economic uh, uh, development issues here. Obviously, our state's in a little bit of a, an economic crisis. We have a, a lot of bills to pay, and we're constantly talking about bringing jobs to the state. We're worried about losing jobs out of the state. So is there some part of you that says, well, we're going to bring some jobs to this area and we're going to create a little bit of economic development in Bloomfield? Well, I mean, I think that's what the Bloomfield officials are thinking, and certainly we want to create jobs. The challenge is, I think, as a state, we need a strategic vision to be to be a high-end manufacturer. We, we are a very productive economy. We need high-end manufacturing jobs. This is a really good site for a manufacturing company. This is a low-end manufacturer with, as I understand it, 37 to 50 low-wage jobs because it's highly, highly mechanized. Um, and then with the tax abatement, there isn't the property tax benefit to the community either. So the economic development part isn't my concern in terms of that community's economic development is working on trying to bring in businesses, and that's a good thing. My concern is protecting the public, that water is a public resource, and that my citizens rose up and called. I got many, many calls saying we're very concerned uh, because water is a public resource, and the state and MDC has had referendum after referendum. All of us have seen our water bills double. And now they're saying, but we're going to give this out-of-state company a discount, even though the public paid to have that infrastructure built. Well, what should the state's role in all this be? I mean, we're talking about the town of Bloomfield approving something, but this is a water resource that we all share. I mean, I'm in the MDC water district. I'm nowhere near Bloomfield. Absolutely. But you should be concerned about it as an MDC customer. Because it's our water. And if you look at Time Magazine this week, it says vanishing waters. We can't predict what's happening with the changing weather patterns, et cetera. Um, But Connecticut's in a drought now. And right now there's no state law in the books, for example, to not prioritize Niagara sending water out of state over us having water coming out of our taps. So I think we need some state regulations that do a few things. One, that protect the public investment and say residents 
are not going to pay more for the water that they invest in the infrastructure for than a private company is going to pay for water. I also think that um, we need to make sure that when there's a process like this, and I'm working with David Barham on this, that there's more transparency. So the public, my constituents felt they did not have enough notice. So we need to be more transparent when there is a move on a piece of property that people understand what that is. Um, so no discount. And then if there is a drought and residents are asked that they have to reduce their water usage, then we need to have the bottling plant sending water out of state shut down. I mean, we need to prioritize the public use of water, in my mind. We're talking with Senator Beth Bayh, who represents Connecticut's 5th Senate District. Uh, Val Rossetti joins us by phone. She's a Bloomfield resident concerned about this bottling plant that has been proposed for her community. If you want to join us at 860-275-7266, I will get to a few of your phone calls, and we do have a few people want to, wanting to call in. We do, though, have on the line Scott Jellison, who's the chief executive officer of the MDC, the Metropolitan District Commission, which oversees the uh, water resource here in this area, which includes Bloomfield. And Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having us. I, I'm wondering if you can first just talk about how this plan came to be, how, how we're ending up now talking about a water bottling plant in Bloomfield. Uh, well, we, we, uh, we the MDC, uh, we, we're, just to start off, we're not going to, the MDC is not going to get into the debate about uh, the concerns of plastic bottles or any other industry. Um, we understand the concern from the environmental uh, environmental uh, uh, groups, and we and we respect that. What what we what we do is we provide water and uh, water source for our eight member towns and for other non member towns for their development. And uh, we basically, uh, if everyone uh, remembers the the water summit from uh, Governor Malloy back in uh, February of 2014, uh, they had a. Uh, they had a professor from University of Massachusetts which showed a number of different uh, graphs, which um, I believe you could get at, on the Yukon website, which basically shows overall that, the, that the, although population is growing across the country, the water consumption is dropping dramatically. And, and we've seen just in this past year uh, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, population in Connecticut dropped over 4,000 persons. So we have been, in 1988, we were utilizing uh, uh, 66 million gallons of water per day. Today, we're averaging under 50. 2014 was uh, under uh, 48. So the water, although population is growing across the country, uh, and if you would uh, take uh, this year out of Connecticut's uh, growth, uh, you can see that, the, that conservation uh, is working, and we're, we're happy for conservation. Uh, and, and if remember the uh, there was a public act uh, a couple of years ago uh, regarding decoupling, which which allows for the private water companies um, like the like the public water companies to 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 charge uh, for conservation measures. In other words, uh, MDC as a as a, um, a nonprofit, uh, it's a very difficult task to. Uh, to determine how much water we're going to sell in a given year to set our budget. Mm -hmm. And uh, given conservation measures, um, we, we have a difficult time hitting that target. We're a nonprofit, so whatever, whatever we, it costs us to produce water, uh, that's our water rate. Our water rate is the lowest uh, in the state. And... Uh, well, so, so, across the country. Well, so, so j j just to get to one of these one of these pieces, and there's a few questions. I, I'm sure Senator Beth Bai has a question or two for you. Um, 
I think a lot of the residents that I'm hearing from, though, Scott, say that this is our resource. This isn't a resource to be sent out of state. This isn't something to be to be put into little bottles and sent to Florida or someplace else where they might use the water. This is actually a, wa- a resource that we've paid for w- through our rates over the years to help build these facilities that the nonprofit MDC is able to maintain, meaning this is a resource we should control. This shouldn't be sent in little bottles by, by a private company out of state. What do you say to that? Sure. And uh, in 1988, those, uh, the MDC, out of that 66 million gallons per day consumed, 17 million gallons per day was industrial use. Today, that's 2 million. So we, as we've seen industrial use drop, the question is, whose water is it? Uh, the water is owned by the eight-member towns. Uh, our our eight-member towns uh, decide how they, how they would like to develop their town. It's our job to make sure through DPH, DEEP, uh, and, and Pura to make sure that we have enough water through our safe yield. Our water supply plan was approved in, in April 16, 2012, which includes DEEP and includes DPH. They have a responsibility and they have reviewed publicly these documents. Those documents show that we have a safe yield of 77 million gallons per day. You have to subtract out the raw water uh, contracts that we have that drops us down to approximately 71 million gallons of water per day. Um, but I, I, I apologize. I, before I turn this over to, to Beth Bai, who I think wants to ask you a question, um, the question about actually sending it out of state. I mean, you talked about the industrial use. Well, yeah, uh, so, there's a lot of industrial uses. Most industrial uses, I would gather, that, um, that use water from the MDC district are industries that produce things here in Connecticut. And the, the question is whether or not we want to use it for an industrial use for something that creates jobs and actual stuff here in, in the state versus creating a few jobs and packing it up into bottles and saying an out-of-state, essentially ceding our water resource to another state that has a, a different sort of uh, issue with water. I mean, that, that was my specific question. Yes, and, I, and, I, and I, what I would tell you is that I agree with you 100% that, that this debate is a statewide debate, and the Water Planning Council is working um, with all the state agencies and all the utility companies and all the environmental groups to make. That should be a state decision. Uh, what we have in front of us is we have a member town that has the, we have the MDC has the water to sell, more than enough water, over 24 million gallons of available water to sell. Um, and and if you, I would ask this question, and again, I don't want to get into that debate, but I would ask this question, Hooker Brewery is in Bloomfield. Hooker Brewery uses six gallons of water per beer to produce. How much beer does Hooker Brewery send out of state or out of, the, or out of this region? And I agree with you 100%. It's a, it's a statewide debate. But if you start picking and choosing uh, which industries uh, we can support, that's mm-hmm. not for us to decide. That, that is not for um, the MDC to decide. If that wants to be a statewide discussion, uh, we're more than happy to have that. Well, we, let me turn to Beth Bai here quickly, because I know you wanted to jump into the conversation, and you're part of the statewide conversation, uh, Senator, about this. So go ahead. Yeah, well, a couple things. I think in terms of Hooker Brewery, they are not selling pure water from 
a resource that we have developed to be the best water in the country. But what Scott's saying is they're using, they're using more water to make the one bottle of beer than we'd be putting in the one bottle of water. Right. I just see it as a very different thing than shipping pure water out of our state. And I also think I'm hearing very clearly from my residents, and, and maybe MDC be willing to have a referendum about selling pure water from Connecticut out of state, because I'm hearing loud and clear from people that they're concerned about water. They hear about Flint, Michigan. They hear about other places. And I think they're very concerned that water in the future is going to be more and more of a precious resource. And we need to make decisions today that support our water needs 20 years from now. And that is my concern. And I'm hearing loud and clear from the people who've been paying for these water upgrades, doubling their water bills, that they don't want to see other people pay less to ship their water out of state. And, and Scott, I just have a minute, but I'd love for you to respond to that. This, this sort of yeah. need for a long-term plan, it's not just how much have we used in the last 10 years, how much are we using now, but how much are we going to be using in 30 years? Right. So in, in this statewide uh, uh, seminar at the Yukon Law uh, Library, it shows that the we've been seeing a reduction uh, by 2% a year. As I said, 88, it was 66 million gallons. Today, it's 47 million gallons. What, what I would just like to say is this. I, I agree wholeheartedly. It's a statewide discussion. The state has, through the uh, 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 Water Planning uh, Committee, has developed a, 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 a strategic group that is working on these very important details. They've been working for the last 18 months. Uh, the NBC, one of the largest, the largest reservoir uh, bodies in, in the state of Connecticut, we had not to this date been included in that. Hopefully, on February 2nd, um, uh, the Water Planning Council will vote to include the MDC in that planning process. And again, during that process, we're more than happy to have this discussion. But as it states today, there, MDC and the other water companies across the state are very concerned. During the Water Planning Council discussions, there was lots of discussions about exactly what happened in Flint, Michigan. The MDC built these reservoirs to protect it for water resources, for drinking, for human consumption. And what has been happening over the last number of years is that there's been a desire through streamflow regulations to release that, that uh, Class A water body to the streams. This, the eight member towns paid for this reservoir, paid for the impoundment of that reservoir. And what's going to happen is what, what exactly what happened in Flint, Michigan. What, what has been proposed, believe it or not, in, within the last six months has been that that why don't we use the Connecticut River as a resource for drinking and, and then release the clean drinking water from the reservoirs into the East Branch um, for the fish. Mm -hmm. Now, we are, we are completely uh, compatible. We release 32 million gallons a day minimum every day, whether it rains or not. We release 32 million gallons of water a day into the West Branch, which makes the Farmington River um, a, a magnificent place uh, to fish and to recreate, up to 100 million gallons of water a day. Now, if you think about 32 million gallons of water it takes to, re to create that environment, if we were to release 32 million gallons a day from the Barkhamstead and Nipog reservoirs, you would remove all of our safe yields. And we would then be forced, like other water companies, to, to look for other measures like the Connecticut River, which is a Class B water body yeah. in Michigan, or 
go after a diversion permit for the West Branch. Well, so, and, and, and uh, Scott, and I apologize. I'm going to have to leave it there. What I'd love to do is actually have you in some time because I think some of these co- uh, conversations about streams and fish these are things that we've had in the past, and I'd love to have you back to have a, a bigger, broader conversation about our water resources, if, if you'd be willing to do that. I, I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. As Scott Jellison's uh, Chief Executive Officer for the MDC, when we come back, more with Beth By. We've also got some more phone calls from you at 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Tomorrow on the show, we'll sit down with exploration expert Michael Robinson. His latest book uh, takes us to the mountains of East Africa in search of the fabled Lost White Tribe. It's very interesting exploration tomorrow on Where We Live. Today, we're talking about a controversial plan to put a bottled water facility in Bloomfield, Connecticut. It's raising questions about water as a resource. Uh, Senator Beth Bay is here, who represents Bloomfield, as well as other towns in the area. Val Rossetti is a concerned Bloomfield resident. And Val, just very, very quickly, I'd like for you to respond to a little bit of what you heard from the MDC and a little bit about what you think is next in the story. Yeah, well, I appreciate MDC water. Uh, The quantities that uh, Scott refers to have come from old hydrologic studies, we really, we've been in a mild to moderate drought in Connecticut recently. Uh, the state water emergency plan has no way of actually mandating that we shut down a water bottling plant that exporting, that's exporting water. And, and if, until we reach like 50% of our reserves, at which point even that mandate gets applied equally to citizens and um, uh, industries and the other thing I just wanted to comment on this doesn't just concern MDC water. This this company is out looking for spring water in Connecticut. They want to add a third of of the water in each bottle um, from springs in Connecticut because mm-hmm. it's good quality and it tastes good. So you even you know towns around the state may not realize that uh, Niagara is looking for water. Uh, there's a plan to truck water in into Bloomfield to add to the bottling plant. We have no idea what, what effect this might have on, uh, you know, say, water being drawn out from an agricultural region of the state. Which is, yeah, and another issue that we'll have to get to in another program. And, Val, thank you so much for your time. You're I appreciate so welcome. it. welcome. Thank you for bringing it up. I, I want to quickly get to a few more phone calls. Mark's in Bloomfield. Hi, Mark. Hi. Yeah, firstly, I just want to make the point that Hooker is making a product, beer, and Niagara is extracting water and bottling it. So my concern is actually with the process, John. Uh, Mayor Gamble has always claimed that the process wasn't hidden, but the facts would say differently in that the abatement was approved the same day on December 14th that Niagara did the public presentation, and the videotape wasn't posted of that meeting for 10 days. On the 22nd of December, members of an environmental committee wrote and urged the town to, the town to slow down. And uh, then the next meeting, December 28th, that regular town council meeting was canceled. The next uh, meeting was scheduled on January 11th. The day that the abatement was signed by the town manager just hours before the meeting when they knew residents were going to come and voice concerns. And the last meeting of January 25th, mm. when over 100 residents showed up and protested, and they said that the, that the uh, contract had just been delivered a few days before that to Niagara. So where is the openness and the process? Where, and also, I want to point out that the MDC 
has been working with Niagara for over a year and a half to make this deal happen somewhere in its region. So, well, and, and Mark, I'm going to have to leave it there, and I want to raise some of those questions with Beth By. I want to quickly, though, get to Bob in Bloomfield. Hey, Bob, go ahead. Hey, thank you very, very much for taking my call. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank uh, Senator Bice for being a great uh, champion of the, of the environment in the past. But respectfully, I'd have to disagree with her on this issue. Uh, it all comes down to jobs. And from walking around town, talking to fellow residents, they're more concerned about jobs, job creation in the state. You know, Connecticut hasn't regained all the jobs we lost during the recession. Why not focus our attention on jobs here in Bloomfield? So, I don't understand it. And Bob, thank you very much. So that, that direct question to you, Beth, by I mean, we heard from somebody else talking about the transparency. We've been talking about where the money's flowing in this thing. There's an awful lot of issues to sort of unpack out of all this. But Bob's very concerned about the jobs, the 50 jobs that might come to the area. And I agree. And I think we've been very focused on jobs. And we have, in fact, regained all the private sector jobs uh, since the recession in Connecticut. And we still need to do better. It's just we need jobs with a living wage in Connecticut that can support that. And so these are not living wage jobs. These are not good jobs. These are low-end jobs. They're still jobs. But all I'm saying is we have to balance the jobs against the impact on the state. And so water is a critical resource for economic development in Connecticut. And we've got to be sure that all industries are on an equal footing with Niagara. Why, why would Niagara get a discount for volume? We've been encouraging people to conserve water all these years. And now we're saying we're going to give a discount. So I think we do need to worry about jobs, but there's a balance with environmental concerns. There always been in the history of our country. So we have less than a minute left uh, in the program. But how does this come up in the state legislative session? I mean, we talk about a, a statewide water plan, which should actually take into consideration all of New England, all of our region, not just one town versus another. How do you bring this to the state legislature and say, we've got to fix something because something seems not quite right in all this? Well, I think for me, it's going to start with public, that the public does not pay more for water than a private company. And also that in the case of any sort of drought or limitation on water, that the public is prioritized. So I'm very clear. Um, and then Representative Barron and I are working on a bill around transparency for when there is this kind of development. So I think we can address those three things this coming session. Beth Bai is a senator who represents Connecticut's 5th Senate District, which includes the town of Bloomfield. I suppose there's a lot more to talk about, so we'll have to have you back to have more conversation about this. Senator, always good to see you. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks to Lydia Brown, who produces this program along with Tucker Ives. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandlin's our digital editor. Katie Talarski is the executive producer of Where We Live. Continue this conversation online. It's wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.